Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On the last episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast, we spoke to the Council on Foreign Relations' Shannon O'Neill about why Mexico's economy is struggling. On today's episode, we're speaking to historian A.S. Dillingham about his new book, Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. As Mexico celebrates Day of the Dead, it's a great time to talk about Oaxaca's indigenous history and traditions. Mexico's indigenous communities have been fighting to protect and promote their history, heritage, and homelands for hundreds of years. Day of the Dead is one of many contemporary examples of a pre-Hispanic custom that has been passed through generations, melded with foreign influences, and preserved. Day of the Dead was promoted around the globe in a 2017 film, Coco, which grossed $808 million around the world. Coco introduced Day of the Dead to families around the world, but also reintroduced the tradition in Mexico and gave it new exposure to urban, globally connected families who may have limited ties to Mexico's rural indigenous traditions. It's Dia de los Muertos. No one's going anywhere. Tonight is about family. Dia de los Muertos is the one night of the year our ancestors can come visit us. We've put their photos on the ofrenda so their spirits can cross over. That is very important. If we don't put them up, they can't come. We made all this food, set out the things they loved in life, mijo. All this work to bring the family together. In today's episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast, we're speaking to Mexico historian A.S. Dillingham about his new book, Oaxaca Resurgent, and the topic of indigenous identity in modern Mexico. Hi, Shane. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nate. Great to be here. So this time of year, we've got uh, the city putting out marigolds all over Mexico City. We have businesses putting up Day of the Dead decorations. So uh, with that in mind, I just wanted to start off the conversation today by asking you if you have a a favorite Day of the Dead memory from your time in Mexico. Yeah, that's a, um, you are right. We, I wish I was in Mexico right now. I'm in Philadelphia. And so we have a small ofrenda or altar here in our house that we've just set up. Um, but it is a special time of the year. Uh, I think in terms of my favorite memory of Day of the Dead is probably from 2017 when I was living in Oaxaca. And uh, that fall, my, my wife's grandfather had passed away that August. And so during uh, the Day of the Dead, we gathered uh, at his grave and we you know, spent the night uh, there uh, accompanying him uh, in the cemetery and you know if for those of the listeners who've been to a cemetery during the Day of the Dead it's a really special time where you know uh, families gather they decorate the graves of their loved ones um, they bring food there's music there's mariachis um, we you know we brought mezcal and pass around mezcal to fellow families and friends and you know, I think it's a beautiful tradition in, in a way that, uh, a kind of powerful way to celebrate um, loved ones who've passed on. And, you know, and the idea, of course, is that they are still with us. And so that's probably my favorite Day of the Dead memory, although there are many. Okay, great. Well, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Oaxaca there, because um, obviously Oaxaca is the focus of your, your book. And I'm wondering, just kind of generally, what makes Oaxaca so unique, and why did you choose to study Oaxaca? Right. Yeah. No. I, Oaxaca, I think, as a um, you know state in southern Mexico, is unique and interesting in a number of ways. And so, you know, just in terms of cultural and linguistic diversity, you know, Oaxaca has over 16 officially recognized indigenous languages at and we could list them, Mixtec, Zapotec, Mije, uh, Chatino, uh, the list goes on. And even within those different language groups, there are 
regionally specific variants, right? So the Zapotec spoken in the valleys is different than the Zapotec spoken on the coast. Um, and you also, in addition to that cultural and linguistic diversity, it is a place of incredible biological diversity, right? So Oaxaca, in a relatively small geographic area, has a central valley that's a, a, a high altitude central valley. It has multiple um, um, uh, mountain ranges, including the Sierra Madre del Sur. It has a Pacific coast, uh, as well as a border, a lowland um, border uh, with the state of Veracruz. And so it's a place of rich biological diversity. One can wake up in the mor morning in the mountains and, you know, be wearing a sweater and, and, uh, and kind of be sitting above the clouds. And by that afternoon, you could be in a tropical climate uh, on the Pacific coast. And so you know, all those things make it an incredibly unique and interesting place. In addition to that, it has this rich social and political history. And so it was a center of pre-Hispanic population, um, home to uh, multiple uh, indigenous um, city-states. Uh, and then as Mexico, you know, um, emerges as a modern nation-state is a place of rich political history in which major Mexican politicians like the 19th century president uh, Benito Juarez, uh, Porfirio Diaz, uh, we could list many more uh, political figures who have a major role in national politics in Mexico all start their careers in the state. And so, you know, for those and many other reasons, I think you know, Oaxaca was a place and is a place that's kind of intrinsically fascinating. Okay, great. So you mentioned, you know, Oaxaca has this very rich and unique um, language, ecology, geography, history, and politics. Um, and you get into all of that uh, in your book. And I wanted just to ask you, what is the, the big idea that you want readers to take away from your book? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the big idea that I hope readers find when they when they open the pages of Oaxaca Resurgent is for them to be able to think about this major contradiction or contradictory nature of, of Mexican politics and society, which is that in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, the state that emerges is a particular state that ends up celebrating kind of officially uh, its indigenous heritage and its indigenous population. And so if listeners have seen the murals of Diego Rivera, you know, painted on public buildings, the National Palace in Mexico, um, or if you think about the way that the Mexican state celebrates pre-Hispanic ruins like uh, Teotihuacan or Monte Alban in Oaxaca, the state has this official celebration of indigenous peoples and the indigenous past, yet at the same time, the state also has cast living indigenous people as a problem, right? As, a, as people who don't speak the national language Spanish, uh, who lack certain modern attributes according uh, to this discourse. And so the Mexican state has this kind of contradictory relationship to its indigenous population. And so in the book, I try to basically examine that contradiction as it plays out in this one particular part of uh, Mexico, the state of Oaxaca. Okay, great. And with all of that in mind, I'm wondering, in the process of doing your field work and writing the book, who's the most interesting character that really stands out to you? Yeah, I, um, you know, in the course of researching the book, I use both archival um, sources, that is materials I found in national and state and local archives, as well as uh, oral histories, right? I interviewed uh, dozens of um, people involved with indigenous politics and education policy in Oaxaca over the course of the 20th century. And, you know, one of the uh, people that stands out in that those interviews that I conducted for the book was a man by the name of Ramon Hernandez Lopez. So Hernandez Lopez was born in 1923. Um, he was born in a highland uh, Mixtec-speaking community in the Mixteca Alta of Oaxaca in the western half of the state near the border with uh, Guerrero. And his town was called uh, San Agustin Tlacotepec. And Hernandez Lopez basically uh, grew up 
only speaking Mixtec, had to learn Spanish in schools, and became a fairly successful student and eventually, eventually won scholarships to study uh, his secondary and high school educations in Mexico City. And he went on to become a federal school teacher and had a very kind of storied career in the history of Mexican education. And so he was this bilingual federal teacher. Um, he returns to Oaxaca in the 1950s uh, and is involved in a number of education initiatives. Uh, he was also sent by Mexico's uh, National Indigenous Development Agency, the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, to spearhead some of its work in the neighboring state of Chiapas. And he eventually returns to uh, where he grew up, the Mixteca Alta, and leads the uh, federal government's efforts to expand education in that highland region. And he heads up an experimental radio uh, uh, school program in which from a radio station located in the district capital of the Mixteca Alta, Plagiaco, he broadcasts Spanish language lessons but importantly, he used both his native Mixtec as well as Spanish to try to reach uh, listeners and students in the region. And so uh, he has this uh, kind of long career. He ascends through the education bureaucracy in Mexico, and he ends up running a number of important education and development programs. Uh, he, for example, was later sent by Alfonso Caso, the head of the uh, Indigenous Development Agency, to uh, Oaxaca's Costa Chica. And there he um, found himself in confrontations with local caciques, right, kind of regional power brokers, as he tried to create agricultural uh, and land reform. So he's, a, he's someone whose life trajectory fits nicely in the evolution of Mexican indigenous education and development policy, and uh, kind of cuts an inspiring figure. Okay, great. And I know in, in your book you really show that uh, the development of public education in Mexico has this really long and rich history in Mexico. Um, so I had a, a couple of statistics that I wanted to mention. Um, we, we know that um, Mexico's public education system is currently stronger than the systems in most other countries in Latin America, but it sits in last place within the OECD. And when it comes to public education, Mexico is ranked 46 out of 50th uh, in a recent PISA study. Um, So basically what we see is that Mexico has this great history of developing a massive public school system in the 20th century, but the country has really failed to keep up with countries in Asia and Eastern Europe in recent decades. This is a a problem that I think many recent politicians and presidents have struggled to address. Um, So kind of looking back a little bit just to a few years ago, I wanted to ask um, what former President uh, Enrique Peña Nieto hoped to accomplish with his education reform and how that played out in Oaxaca specifically. Right. No, that's a great question, Nate. And I think you're right to point to the history of Mexican education um, as this, in some ways, singular experience in public education in the early part of the 20th century. So one of the the major achievements of the post-revolutionary state uh, was the offer to expand public, federal, uh, secular education throughout the rural countryside of Mexico. And so in the 1920s and 1930s, Uh, you see this massive expansion of education. Um, And uh, I think I should know, just for listeners, part of that expansion involved the the expansion of education, not only through the education ministry, but also through the National uh, Teachers Union, which eventually is called the CENTE, or the S-N-T-E. And so the history of the Ministry of Education in Mexico and the history of the CENTE in Mexico are intertwined. In terms of your question about Peña Nieto's, former President Peña Nieto's education reform, you know, I think nominally the way that the uh, Peña Nieto uh, and his administration described it was that this reform would address exactly some of the uh, uh, problems that you, you just mentioned, uh, that it would improve uh, standards in terms of Mexican edu- education, 
It would, uh, for example, ask uh, Mexican uh, public school teachers to sit for qualifying exams to basically ensure the quality of uh, teacher preparation. So there were these proposed tests for uh, teachers. It also did aim to uh, wrest away control from the National Teachers Union, which had uh, over the years been able to control certain segments of the Ministry of Education's administrative kind of functions. So it was a union that at times, if for English language speakers, you might call a kind of closed shop uh, union. Uh, and so all of Peña Nieto's reforms were in part aimed at trying to wrest control from the Sente uh, national leadership. Uh, they also said that there was corruption within uh, the union and within the education ministry. Um, they gave examples of you know, teachers being on the books who weren't actually teaching classes, these kind of quote unquote ghost teachers. And so all of Peña Nieto's education reform was directed at, ostensibly at these problems. Critics, uh, and I would agree with a lot of these criticisms, argued that um, Peña Nieto's reforms were really a kind of top-down reform that was more rhetoric than substantive policy. Uh, they pointed out that there was plenty of corruption within the Ministry of Education itself. Uh, Peña Nieto's uh, Ministry of Education, for example, was spending more money on their media campaigns than they were on proper teacher training. Um, and that was happening while, you know, schools in regions such as Oaxaca, you know, if, if one were to visit them, people would, I think, be uh, shocked by the lack of basic school infrastructure, school buildings, school supplies, etc. And so the, that was Peña Nieto's kind of aim. Um, but he was uh, confronted, uh, I think, uh, quite forcefully by both the National Teachers Union as well as the dissident current within the teachers union, which is the national uh, coordinator of teachers, uh, both those um, sectors within the education system fought back uh, and resisted those reforms uh, over a number of years. Okay. And w with all of that in mind, um, what differences do we see during the current administration? Um, what has President AMLO done regarding education reform? Right. So Lopez Obrador, the current president of Mexico, you know, he came into office with the explicit promise to withdraw um, Peña Nieto's reforms, right, which had kind of stalled out for all intents and purposes. And so Lopez Obrador explicitly sought to halt um, his predecessor's reforms. Uh, I think uh, you, we can't really talk about um, Lopez Obrador's uh, relationship to education policy without describing the way that the pandemic has affected education over the last few years in Mexico. So uh, Mexican schools, um, uh, like many places around the world, uh, were shut down during the pandemic. There was a, a shift to online education. Um, you know, kind of the government's policy was a learn from home policy. And, you know, that, like in many places, has resulted in a real mm, loss in terms of educational culture and practices over the last couple of years. So, you know, when I was in Oaxaca uh, last year, you know, I was in a, a small rural town in the mountains and you would see uh, uh, junior high school students standing on a hilltop with their cell phones trying to connect to their online class, right, with weak internet signals, etc. And so, you know, I think most of the problems that we're seeing in Mexican education right now under the Lopez Obrador administration are tied up to this uh, very challenging uh, question of the pandemic. There have been fights over reopening the schools with the teachers union opposing um, some of the reopenings. But now here, just in the uh, last few months, we have seen a significant sector of the education uh, system open up. Um, and I think the other thing that's worth mentioning, just because we're talking about Lopez Obrador's relationship to education, he has uh, in many ways been engaged in an attack on uh, higher education. That is the national university in Mexico, the UNAM. And so you've seen Lopez Obrador, I think in strange ways, kind of casting about criticizing institutions of higher education in Mexico, trying to limit their budgets. Um, limit research budgets, etc., all in the name of maybe fighting corruption or austerity. But I think this is having really negative effects on uh, the quality um, uh, and capacity of higher education in Mexico. 
Okay, interesting. And I know that um, at the local level in different industrial cities in Mexico, we have politicians that are wondering about the future um, of manufacturing and what's happening with, um, you know, high tech manufacturing, the Internet of Things, Industry 4.0, all of these things. And they're wondering about how they can prepare their young people for the industry of the future. And I'm wondering, is that something that you hear AMLO talking about at all? Is is kind of innovation and um, like a high-tech future at all part of his discourse related to education? Or is that not something that you've, you've heard him speak a lot about? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately the president's rhetoric around education uh, has not gotten to that level of sophistication. I don't think he's really invested in thinking about innovative, innovative uh, approaches to education or, or the, the questions of, say, science and math uh, um, instruction that you're alluding to. I think where we do see people talking about that is in the nonprofit uh, sector, right? So you have education-related um, um, NGOs and nonprofits that are trying to push forward some alternative models but in terms of the leadership uh, from um, the, the presidential administration, I don't see uh, much interesting language uh, coming from there. Okay, interesting. Um, so going back a little bit to Mexico's recent past, um, I remember when I was working on the Oaxaca chapter of my book, I attended a teacher's protest in the state capital in Oaxaca. Um, and I remember seeing, you know, this group of thousands of teachers uh, approaching a group of thousands of police in, in riot gear. And at a certain point, uh, some of the teachers started hurling mango sized rocks into the into the group of police and the police fired uh, tear gas canisters into the crowd. And I think within Mexico, probably more than any other union in the country, uh, teachers unions in particular have a reputation for being militant and sometimes violent. And I'm wondering if you've attended any more recent protests in Oaxaca or in Mexico City. No, you're, yeah, you're right. I think education activism and teacher protests and teacher strikes are a major part of Mexican politics and indeed in the state of Oaxaca are one of the central cleavages of Oaxacan politics. And so in many ways, you know, the way that I came to write my book, Oaxaca Resurgent, started with a teacher strike uh, in 2006. So in 2006, Oaxacan teachers, uh, led by Section 22 of the National Union, uh, struck on May 1st. And Oaxacan teachers had been striking basically annually on May 1st, International Workers' Day, for uh, over 20 years. It started in 1980. And that strike by 2006 had become somewhat of a routine affair, right? Every May 1st, they would go on strike, uh, they would enter into negotiations with the governor and federal authorities, and they would reach some kind of settlement. But in 2006, the strike became historic precisely because it didn't follow that routine. So the governor at the time, who was a member of the ruling party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI, Ulises Ruiz Ortiz, instead of negotiate with the teachers, he sent in riot police, uh, baton-wielding riot police who attacked the teachers' encampment. You had uh, police in helicopters shooting tear gas um, ab above the city center. And that government repression basically turned that annual teacher strike into a massive social movement. So over the course of 2006, and I was, I was there studying uh, as a graduate student, one saw the teachers movement uh, in Oaxaca seize control of the state capital. Basically police, you would see no federal or local police within uh, the center of the state capital. Teachers ran it. Uh, some supporters of the teachers movement called it uh, the Oaxacan commune making comparisons to the uh, Paris Commune. Uh, and you saw this major development of a, a social movement in which uh, teachers and their allies blocked roads, um, obviously marched through the streets. You had marches of over you know, 100, 200,000 people, which is a very large uh, march for a state of Oaxaca, uh, which has a just a few million uh, people in terms of total population. Um, and the goal of that movement 
was to get rid of the governor, right? Is was to uh, not just transform from a, a strike to um, a political movement to get the governor uh, to um, uh, resign. And the way politically you can get the governor to resign is if the state is declared ungovernable. And so in 2006, you know, when you're alluding to some of the major street conflicts or violence, the goal of the teachers movement was to make the, the state ungovernable. So it would trigger a, a state constitutional crisis and the uh, uh, resignation of the governor. Uh, they weren't successful in that because eventually in through a negotiated settlement with the federal authorities, uh, federal police, which would now be the Guardia Nacional in Mexico, were brought in and the movement was put down. Um, but uh, that, I think, is probably the, the biggest, most explosive teacher protest I've seen in recent years in Mexico. Okay, great. And I know that in general, in Mexico, when we think about teachers unions, we think about um, you know, corruption at the at the top level. And I remember a few years ago, there was a well-known union leader who was arrested and news stories came out about all of the designer clothing that she owned and the properties that she owned in, uh, in Mexico and in the U.S. And that was kind of like a, a symbol for the corruption within the, the union. Um, but that's at the national level. And I'm wondering how important is that corruption at the local level in Oaxaca and how does it play out or affect people's lives at the local level in Oaxaca? Right. No, that, I think that's a, a great point. And, you know, you're referring to Elber Esther Gordillo, right, or the, the mm-hmm. um, maestra and who was, you know, her kind of flagrant corruption, her fancy clothes, her houses and fancy neighborhoods in Mexico City and San Diego were, you know, just egregious signs of the corruption in the National Union. And um, and she eventually found herself arrested uh, for some of that. Um, I think in terms of Oaxaca and teachers organizing in Oaxaca, for much of the uh, last two decades of the 20th century, Oaxacan teachers were part of a dissident movement within the National Union that was aimed at confronting that corruption and undemocratic control of the Sente, right? And so uh, Elba Esther Gordillo and these other corrupt leaders were part of a current within the National Teachers Union called Vanguardia Nacional, which was a current connected to the ruling party. And so that corrupt union leadership found alliances with politicians and actually kind of went back and forth in terms of holding political office and then holding trade union offices. And so many teachers in Mexico, particularly teachers in southern Mexico, teachers in indigenous regions in the 19, late 1970s and then even more forcefully in the 1980s, sought to confront that corrupt, undemocratic leadership um, by wresting control of their union locals from the national uh, leadership in the Vanguardia Revolucionaria. And so in Oaxaca, that struggle uh, is taking place throughout the 1980s, and they do eventually democratize Section 22, that is the Oaxacan local of the teachers' union. And so they are able to democratize their own uh, union local and get rid of some of this corrupt leadership. But the corrupt leadership remains at the national level, right? And, and La Maestra, or these the union leader that you mentioned, would be a good example of that. And so there was this historic struggle, you know, uh, that was successful. But I think today, um, you know, you could probably point to continued problems within the education sector in Oaxaca, in which, um, for example, education budgets have often been used as basically political slush funds for state governors, right? And so the governors of Oaxaca uh, in the last few decades often basically took money out of education budgets to use uh, at their pleasure. And um, so there's still, I think, a struggle for uh, accountability and transparency uh, at the local level. Okay. And I, I remember that a few years ago during the, the height of the protests in Oaxaca against the education reform, I saw a poll that said nine out of 10 residents opposed the hardline tactics of the union members, including, you know, blockades and uh, sometimes violent marches and fights with police and things like that. Um, 
And I'm wondering, what is the relationship right now between Oaxaca's residents and teachers unions? Is there still frustration with the strikes and um, with some of the more violent tactics? Or is there also somewhat of an understanding that this isn't a problem just about teachers unions, that in, in Mexico in general, the state is weak and rule of law is, is limited and actors in a variety of sectors sometimes have to use violent tactics to achieve their their means, uh, their goals. And um, yeah, so I'm just wondering, overall, is there some understanding of why teachers are using these tactics? Or is there kind of more frustration with the disruptions which do happen, you know, right. which do happen if you're living in Oaxaca City, and you have to deal with blockades and, and, and protest marches? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, your comment, I think, is really important, Nate. Um, you know, I, when I was living in Oaxaca a few years ago, you know, uh, a neighbor of mine described Oaxaca City as uh, La Ciudad Tomala, right? The, which would translate as, uh, uh, or he, he, excuse me, he said it was the Ciudad Borracha, porque siempre está tomada, right? That it is mm -hmm. the drunk city because it's always taken or seized, right? It's a kind of play on the Spanish. But in the sense that, you know, Oaxaca City is oftentimes paralyzed by strikes and protests. And so for uh, city residents, this is a major nuisance, right? And uh, it is a um, source of endless frustration. And so I certainly think that there is that sentiment, um, lots of frustration with the tactics and, and the effects on third parties when there are these strikes and protests, not just of Oaxacan teachers, but of other sectors of Oaxacan society. But at the same time, as you allude to, um, you know, many people in Oaxaca have teachers as part of their family, right? The Oaxacan teachers uh, are the largest um, sector of the, you know, formal employment in the state. The Oaxacan Teachers Union is the largest trade union in the state. Uh, Oaxaca is still today a relatively uh, rural place, so it doesn't have a large industrial sector. And so the teachers union is kind of the uh, uh, major um uh, political voice outside of the governor's office, right? And so in 2006, the, the teachers union could serve as a kind of rallying point to try to affect change. Um, and I think as you point to, one of the problems with the teachers um, uh, movement or the education sector in Oaxaca is you can't really separate it from this context of uh, rural poverty and lack of economic opportunity. And so the, the teacher, the teacher's movement, the um, positions as within uh, the education sector are highly coveted in a place where there's few uh, employment opportunities. And I think as you suggested, the last thing to say about it would be, you know, in Oaxaca and in Mexico more broadly, you have a lack of functioning uh, state institutions, you have a lack of um, enforced regulations and um, federal or local uh, policies. And so what people find is that the way that they achieve uh, you know, higher wages or better job protections is through um, basically social protest and social mobilization. And so there's a long history of that in, in Mexico. Um, but today, even if you see, you know, we think about struggles around um, femicides, right, or violence against women, we don't see Mexican institutions uh, taking the steps necessary. And what we do see is Mexican civil society and feminists and other activists waging, you know, struggles in the streets to try to affect change. And so I think plenty of Oaxacans, you know, and I don't want to speak for uh, all of society, but I think plenty of people in Oaxaca understand those contradictions, right? That uh, while there are these frustrations about teacher strategies uh, and uh, the way that they affect the rest of uh, Oaxacan life, I think they're also an understanding that there are very few other institutional avenues to affect change. And so part of this is uh, a reflection of that broader institutional um, lack of capacity. Okay. So, you know, it's a very complicated movement that's taking place within an immensely complex social and political context <laughs> but exactly. i'm wondering if we can just sum up a little bit and if you had to pick just three words to describe oaxaca's teachers unions what what three words would you choose all right 
right. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a try. I think the three words when I think about Oaxaca's teachers' movement is uh, dissident, uh, mobilized, and um, equality, right? Um, because this is a historically dissident um, teachers' uh, movement. It's a movement that has used social mobilization. And I think oftentimes the fights over Oaxacan education are fights about equity and equality. Okay, interesting. Um, if I had to pick three words, I, I, I probably would pick indigenous to be <laughs> to be one of the words. Um, yeah. But that, that leads me into my next question, which is uh, Mexico's current president, Lopez Obrador, really loves to use indigenous symbols and indigenous clothing. But some of his development plans have also been met with resistance from indigenous communities. And uh, you talk about this idea that during Mexico's modern era of economic development, the concept of modernity really meant integration with the global economy. But in practice, it also meant trying to erase indigenous identity. So within that context, I'm wondering, what is AMLO's relationship like with Oaxaca's indigenous communities? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you are correct in that the president um, often invokes, uh, right, we're commemorating the 500th anniversary of um, the fall of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, and the, uh, you know, in the process of the Spanish conquest. And so we're, we're commemorating that anniversary. The president's administration has organized a series of events to do that and describing it as 500 years of indigenous resistance. So there's a way I think that Lopez Obrador kind of wraps himself in the symbolism of uh, Mexico's indigenous peoples. I think in terms of his relationship to uh, indigenous communities in Oaxaca, I would describe it as, you know, probably at best a kind of you know rhetorical or superficial celebration of those communities uh, rather than a kind of a deep connection with them uh, you know we could think about the different um, major initiatives that his administration is putting forward whether it's the train Maya or the efforts to connect the Oaxacan isthmus you know on both sides of the Atlantic and the Pacific these are initiatives that involve no consultation with the indigenous communities that they would affect and are, you know, really about, you know, kind of this model of economics that is uh, uh, focused on macroeconomic growth, on big federal investments that I don't think really reckon with the reality of, of indigenous communities, particularly in the South. Okay, great. So kind of if we can play the same game here, uh, can you try to sum up AMLO's relationship with Mexico's indigenous communities in just three words? Sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, and that one maybe is, is easier to, I think AMLO's relationship to uh, indigenous communities uh, could easily be described as rhetorical, paternalistic, and folkloric, right? Um, and I could elaborate on why I think that, but, I, you know, I think that he stands in a long uh, tradition of Mexican politicians who don indigenous, you know, uh, dress or, or make uh, superficial references to indigenous communities while doing little, I think, to uh, respectfully engage with those communities, their political traditions or, or, or cultural knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I think this is kind of why it's so important to, you know, to look back at the history and understand, you know, how, how the present relates to history, because AMLO insists that he's a complete break from Mexico's corrupt and um, corrupt and unfair past where only elites benefited and indigenous communities were left out. But really, we see a lot of parallels between his rhetoric and his actions and, you know, presidents from the, the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. So maybe rather than being a complete break with the, the past, it's just a return to a, you know, an earlier model. But it's also a model that, um, you know, many people at the local level in Oaxaca might be frustrated with and might not be completely, completely on board with. I know that in the Oaxaca chapter of my book, I, I focused on a, a town that has a group of master mezcal makers who created a bilingual school for their kids. Um, but right now are caught up between 
wanting to preserve their language and their indigenous traditions, but also wanting to prepare their kids to study English and find success outside of their towns and to integrate with the, the global economy. Um, and I'm wondering if this conflict between preserving traditions and preparing for the future is something you've seen in Oaxaca. Right. No, I mean, I think your, you know, your chapter on Oaxaca does get at this long-standing dilemma, which uh, is a dilemma, I should say, uh, that indigenous people, I think, are faced with uh, in an unfair uh, and long-standing way, which is um, for indigenous people to participate uh, in uh, the economy, in politics, in education, in modern life, they uh, were uh, asked to shed an important part of themselves, which is their indigenous language or cultural practices, right? And so much of Mexican history was, and Mexican federal policy basically said as much, right? You need to stop speaking your indigenous language. Uh, there were education models that used corporal punishment against those um, who spoke their native languages in the classroom. And, um, and you need to become modern Mexicans or modern campesinos, right? Which would be a political category that was important in post-revolutionary Mexico. And so that, you know, dilemma that indigenous Mexicans face is one that continues to exist today in which uh, communities are both trying to valorize and preserve particularly indigenous languages that uh, have fewer and fewer speakers, um, but at the same time reckoning with the reality that they need to uh, navigate an economy um, and a political system in which Spanish and increasingly English are the languages of commerce and, and power. And so, uh, you know, I, for example, as I studied the history of um, efforts at kind of bilingual instruction in Mexico that were these reformist efforts, particularly in the 1960s and 1970s, there were many indigenous teachers and communities who were in favor of bilingual instruction in their native language. But there were always, of course, sectors of those communities that were concerned with their children speaking Spanish well, right? Speaking Spanish without an accent uh, in order to avoid being discriminated against. And of course, today, the parallel would be, you know, as you narrate in your chapter, um, those people who are involved in the mezcal industry or other um, um, uh, economic activities in which English is increasingly uh, important, right? And of course, English is being introduced through longstanding migration patterns in, in Oaxaca. And so there is a, a, a basically Oaxacan diaspora today that, you know, works uh, outside of Oaxaca and Mexico City and northern Mexico and commercial agriculture and of course in the United States and so many of the communities that I was doing research in I would run into youth who might speak Mixtec um, because they speak Mixtec with their family and then they spoke English because they had gone to school in Southern California and learned English in schools and some of them didn't speak much Spanish and so these were these interesting children right who had who were Mexican citizens who spoke Mixtec and spoke English and had almost, you know, basically skipped the national language, right? Which I think speaks to this complicated reality of people trying to navigate um, an increasingly globalized world um, and having, you know, feet in indigenous uh, speaking uh, communities as well as an international economy. Okay, so I know that, you know, today you've talked about kind of Oaxaca's unique unique cultural history and unique geography. But I think that both of those factors are, are, are really important for understanding, you know, why it's so difficult to build a high quality public education system in, in the state. Um, so I just wanted to mention a couple of statistics. Um, overall, we know that fewer than one in five young people in Oaxaca enroll in tertiary education. And that's about half the rate that's found in, in Mexico City or Nuevo León. And right now, illiteracy is almost 12% in Oaxaca versus just 2% in Mexico City or Nuevo León. And overall, Oaxaca has the second highest illiteracy rate in Mexico, and it trails only, only Chiapas in that metric. Um, so I think it is safe to say that the state's 
remote and rugged terrain poses challenges for schools. Um, we know that the population is, is, you know, very spread out among small hamlets in, in mountainous areas. And that kind of, you know, bucks the global trend towards urbanization. And so when I was working on my book, I found that there are more than 5,600 primary schools in Oaxaca that serve just half a million students. So uh, there's an interesting comparison that we can make to the U.S., which is that uh, Oaxaca's population of school children is about the same as the state of Connecticut, but it has five times as many schools as, as Connecticut does. So for policymakers, I think that that creates you know, immense challenges. How do you ensure that this massive number of schools um, you know, can guarantee high quality uh, elementary and high school education um, when there aren't really the same economies of scale that exist in more uh, urbanized states. And, um, you know, you just mentioned the example of how, how there are some communities that will speak an indigenous language and also English because they've, choose, they've chosen to leave their community, go to the U.S., come back, and now they speak English and a, and a local language but not Spanish. Um, and I think that historically Mexico's economic development model has favored the North and kind of ignored the South. And the maybe the accident by design there is that a lot of people will choose to leave uh, states like Chiapas and Oaxaca and either move to northern Mexican states and work in industry or move uh, to California, other states in the U.S. And, and your, in your book, you mentioned that there were policymakers in Mexico, you know, 50 years ago who were excited about migration because they saw it as a, as a modernizing force that would kind of break people out of their isolated communities. Um, so I'm wondering... In 2021 and beyond, as a policy choice, you know, decisions have to be made about investing resources in rural education or improving the quality of urban education to prepare um, young people in cities for the manufacturing and service jobs of the future. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering, what's the future for public education in Oaxaca? Do you think that policymakers are are in fact going to favor urban education over investing in rural schools? Right. No. Yeah. You raise a number of really important uh, dynamics there in your question, Nate. I mean, I think you know the the education statistics that you mentioned for Oaxaca in terms of you know large scale illiteracy and um, you know lack of uh, access to higher education. I think all of that is is true. Um, unfortunately. I think for me, you know, you can't really separate that from what you mentioned, which is the you know, large-scale poverty and lack of economic opportunity in Oaxaca. And so I think it would be a mistake to think that somehow we are going to develop the most, you know, the perfect educational solution to a problem that is also fundamentally an economic and a political problem. And as you said, over the course of the 20th century, Oaxaca, um, which had at one point been a center of, you know, Spanish colonial wealth and a major hub of indigenous civilization, in the 20th century, Mexico chooses an economic model that favors uh, industrialization and urbanization, and in particular, in the second half of the 20th century, commercial agriculture, which is primarily located in northern Mexico, and so, as you mentioned, right, and so you see, you know, the effects of the green revolution, this, you know, advent of, you know, large scale commercial agriculture based on monocultures, uh, chemical fertilizers explode in northern Mexico in places like Sonora, Sinaloa, Baja California, um, uh, in other states. And that is taking place uh, through large scale federal investment, infrastructure projects, irrigation projects to bring water into uh, arid areas. And I think the other thing, the other reason that Mexico chooses that model of economic development is, of course, proximity to U.S. markets. And so if you have commercial agriculture set up in Baja California or other northern states, within a number of hours, those uh, commodities are sitting on U.S. Uh, supermarket shelves. Oaxaca, because of its geographic position and also because of its topography that you mentioned, 
is not a prime candidate for large-scale commercial agriculture. And so rather than experiencing Mexican macroeconomic growth in the 20th century as a, as a positive, um, in many ways, Oaxaca suffers uh, at mid-century as you know, in, uh, industrial-produced goods that are coming from Mexico City or places like Puebla enter Oaxaca and undermine local industries. Um, and Oaxacans themselves, because of uh, basically an increase, increasing dependence on a cash economy, find themselves working outside of the state, right? So a large portion of Oaxaca's population now uh, works uh, outside of the state. And so, you know, I don't think we can ask um, education policy alone to solve that structural inequality. Um, but I do think we can uh, ask education policies to policymakers to take seriously uh, the realities of education in uh, Oaxaca. Um, you know, there are a large number of schools, as you mentioned, but the quality of those schools are quite poor. And so thinking about how to restructure those schools um, to offer education to the populations that exist. But I think you also have to think about what are the economic opportunities that are going to keep people in those communities? Um, because increasingly, you know, if you visit certain communities, and I know you have, you know, there'll be these basically ghost towns where you have uh, the elderly and you'll have some young children and most working age adults are have traveled outside of their community to find, um, you know, wage labor uh, domestically or abroad. And so I think for education policy in the future, uh, I think we have to think in innovative ways. And there are Oaxacan teachers, there's dissident, um, uh, a group of teachers that I have collaborated with, the uh, Coalition of Indigenous Teachers of Oaxaca, or the Simpio in Spanish, um, you know, they have, I think, very interesting proposals to try to um, transform Oaxacan education to be more engaging, uh, to include community participation, uh, to reckon with the reality of out-migration. Um, and so I think, you know, policymakers, there needs to be reform at the top in terms of the Ministry of Education. But there also needs to be a, a, a communication between teachers on the ground who know their communities and know their needs and federal decision making. Okay, great. So uh, a lot of the conversations today has focused on kind of this relationship between, you know, local traditions and local identities and, and global trends and global identities. And uh, we also started off the conversation by, by talking about Day of the Dead. And I just wanted to you know, to loop back to that a little bit. Um, so I remember a few years ago, um, we started seeing some changes in the way that Day of the Dead is, is celebrated in Mexico. And, and honestly, a lot of a lot of it had to do with two Hollywood movies. You know, a, <laughs> yep, you're right. <laughs> there's a James Bond movie that came out that had a Day of the Dead um, parade which is then an idea that Mexico City's government copied and created. And now it's a very fun, you know, fun, a fun tradition that people enjoy celebrating. And then the movie Coco came out. And I think that Coco introduced the concept of Day in the Dead um, to audiences in the U.S. and countries around the world. But it also reintroduced Day of the Dead to um, kind of more globally connected urban communities in in Mexico, where maybe there are families who speak Spanish and who speak English and who travel, you know, who travel mm -hmm. to the U.S. and who travel to Europe, but don't really have much connection to indigenous Mexico. And Coco for them was a way to kind of reconnect with some, um, you know, uniquely Mexican traditions. Um, and with that in mind, I'm wondering, you know, how do you see Day of the Dead fitting into this broader conversation about preserving, celebrating, and also discriminating against indigenous culture and indigenous identity in modern Mexico. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a really thoughtful um, commentary and question, Nate, and I, it raises important and, and complicated issues about, you know, um, Mexican national politics, about the kind of commodification of indigenous cultural practices, um, and, uh, you know, who and how do we celebrate these things? You know, on one level, I think that for the, in the example of Coco, you know, I have family in Oaxaca who, you know, enjoy the film, some who criticize the film. Uh, I think that in, on one level, I think that people 
learning about indigenous cultural traditions, uh, even if it's mediated through a Disney film, can be a productive uh, thing. And I, and I, in some ways, you know, happy that more people understand what Day of the Dead is. I think, like any cultural practice, uh, uh, it can be commodified, right? It can be used to as a um, in a way that's sold for profit. That is taken outside of its original cultural context. And I think that's why some people and critics uh, view Day of the Dead celebrations that were introduced, you know, by the James Bond film recorded there in Mexico City. I think they're, you know, understandably critical of that. Um, I think that it's worth, if it's worth people thinking about if, if their experience with Day of the Dead and learning about Day of the Dead allows them to come closer to understanding how indigenous peoples have understood death and understood our relationship to death. I think that is something that is positive, right? I think one thing to think about is that um, indigenous uh, ways of being in the world are one way of making, and I say something to this effect in the book, they're one way of making the past speak to the present, one way of thinking about what is our relationship to the past. And so you know, what I would want to see is that um, people uh, respectfully engage with indigenous cultural knowledge and are open to learning from it, right? Um, but I think it's always going to be a messy process in which, you know, Hollywood uh, or government agencies are engaged in this, you know, for their own ends. Um, but I think for me, what is exciting about Day of the Dead and, and um, projects of indigenous cultural uh, revitalization is it's a way for us to think about our relationship to the world and relationship to each other in radically different ways. And in Oaxaca, I think one of the things that Oaxaca offers to the world is to think about the way that we are um, connected to each other and connected to the land or connected to nature, right? That we are involved in reciprocal relationships. And I think, you know, all of Mexican society uh, and you know, global society could learn something from those types of cultural values. I'd like to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores. Visitors and residents in Mexico City and Guadalajara can stop by one of El Deposito's locations and try a wide selection of independently owned beers, including Minerva, Loba, and Calavera. Overall, craft beer still only accounts for around 1% of Mexico's beer market, but many of the brands at El Deposito are carving out a niche for themselves within Mexico. For craft beer aficionados, the best place to sample Mexico's celebrated cervezas artesanales is El Deposito. Uh, I just wanted to close out the conversation today by asking you a couple of quick, fun questions. And the first one is, what's your what's your favorite cantina in Mexico? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have spent a, a decent amount of time in Mexican cantinas. Uh, there, uh, there's lots uh, probably to explore. My favorite cantina is a cantina that is located in the Zapotec town of Placalula, which is uh, just about half hour east of Oaxaca City. And, you know, you, I imagine you've probably visited there, Nate, but it's a, a Zapotec community that's famous for its uh, weekend uh, markets that draws in uh, other outlying Zapotec towns from around the Central Valleys. And there's a cantina uh, there near the market that uh, uh, has... Uh, lovely uh, local mezcal, um, uh, local musicians playing, and uh, you see the vendors who've come in from the outlying communities, once they've sold their goods in the morning, they come into the cantina in the afternoon um, for uh, a drink or two before heading home. That's probably my favorite. I would hesitate to give listeners the name of that cantina because I selfishly want to protect it just for myself. Um, but uh, that's probably my favorite cantina. The cantina's in Tlacalula, and so if, if listeners visit there, just take a stroll through uh, the, the city center and you'll probably stumble on a number of interesting places. 
Okay, great. So a little bit of a scavenger hunt for, <laughs> for anyone <laughs> exactly. who, who visits Wahaka. Yeah. Um, and then the, the next question is, is uh, what is your favorite cafe that you visited in Mexico? Um, well, there's, there's plenty of those as well. And of course, Mexico is a great producer of, of coffee. Um, I did, you know, as I was living uh, and uh, researching and writing in Oaxaca City, I spent a lot of time at the Centro Cultural San Pablo, which is a cultural center located in downtown Oaxaca City um, that involves the, uh, uh, a refurbished 16th century Dominican church, right? And so this uh, private foundation uh, uh, refurbished and renovated this church. And so it's now a research library. It includes a beautiful patio and a coffee shop overlooking um, this patio. And so I uh, spent many afternoons uh, writing and, and uh, enjoying a coffee there at um, the Centro Cultural San Pablo. Okay, great. And then finally, uh, you know, obviously Mexico is a, is a country that has so much to offer visitors, you know, who want to visit different parts of the country. But I'm wondering for you, what is the favorite sight or sound that stands out to you from your time in Mexico? Yeah, um, yeah, I think Mexico is a place of uh, uh, many beautiful sights and sounds uh, and smells. Uh, it, it is, a, a, I think, a, a place of... Um, uh, that is, of course, what attracted me to write uh, a book about Mexico and Oaxaca in particular. I think the image that I am most struck by or that stands in my memory is if people visit Oaxaca City, if you arrive or depart from Oaxaca City, which is a city located in a highland central valley, um, you will see the ruins of Monte Alban, this Zapotec uh, city, that city-state that dominated uh, the valleys prior to Spanish arrival. And so if you are leaving or arriving in a plane to Oaxaca City, you see uh, the ruins of Monte Alban, which are on a mountain ridge about 500 meters above the valley floor. And so you see the relationship between the modern state capital of Oaxaca City and these ancient Zapotec ruins. And there's something about, you know, their proximity, right? And as the city has expanded and, uh, and you know, grown over uh, recent decades, this modern city is encroaching upon these ancient ruins. And that contrast between this ancient past and the kind of bustling um, um, uh, contemporary capital is, is one that always stays with me. Okay, great. Well, um, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the cover of your book right now. I know that the title is Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. And I remember when I received it in the mail and I looked at the, the cover, I was really expecting to engage with, you know, a very academic and, and challenging text. And I was really pleasantly surprised to find, you know, how engaging, interesting and fun your book was to read. You know, I think that you you put a lot of effort into writing the book in a way that is, um, you know, kind of easy to absorb and will be engaging to a much broader audience than just, you know, kind of like a small academic niche. Um, so again, uh, you know, I just want to say how much I enjoyed your book. And I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us on the, the Modern Mexico podcast. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate um, your questions uh, and your thoughtful comments. I'd like to take a minute to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by the Distrito Fijo Cycling Club in Mexico City. It's really important for tourists to understand the local dynamics in the places in Mexico they want to visit. And one of the best ways to explore Mexico is on two wheels. So to meet local cyclists, to have an espresso or a meal, or to join in on an early morning group ride, stop by Distrito Fijo's clubhouse and cycling store in the trendy Colonia Juarez neighborhood in Mexico City. In today's episode, we talked about the state of Oaxaca. 
Distrito Fijo can help residents and visitors organize multi-day road and gravel cycling vacations in Oaxaca, Chiapas, Jalisco, and other states in Mexico. On that note, we can wrap up this episode of the Modern Mexico podcast. If you haven't already checked it out, listen to the last episode of the podcast where we speak to Mexico expert Shannon O'Neill about Mexico's economic problems and why she gives President Lopez Obrador a failing grade for his economic stewardship. Thanks again for tuning in to the Modern Mexico podcast. The next episode is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.